As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're breaking down the USA's comprehensive victory over Ghana in their friendly on Tuesday night. We said after the Germany game that we shouldn't overvalue friendly results uh, as they're more about gaining experience and opportunity for players. But Joe Lowry, clearly this result means we're winning the World Cup, right? (laughs) That's where I was hoping you were going with this, because that's where I was going to take it if you didn't take it there. I think we (laughs) can just cancel 2026 now, pretty much. Ghana's been conquered. That's like the biggest dragon there is (laughs) for some reason for the United States men's national team. I I think we're done here, Taylor. I think we are. I mean, we talked about this a little bit uh, in the Listener Questions episode yesterday, but yes, I have some PTSD about playing Ghana, even though we did sort of excise some of those demons with the win in 2014 but there's the loss in 2010 there's the loss in 2006 as well and so they are a team that i am always nervous about even if they don't seem particularly strong this Ghana team seemed like they were decently strong then they lose to mexico then after this result i'm thinking we can take away certain things from this one but i don't think i would go so far as to say like we beat a a strong and comprehensively put together Ghana team so uh this is all is right with the world everything is great yeah, it's not really a black and white thing in this game. It's it's much more of a gray thing coming mm-hmm. out of this match. Taylor, you know who's not particularly afraid of Ghana? It's Angola. It's Madagascar. <laughs> it's Niger. It's I mean, it's yeah. you can run through these teams that they have failed to beat in in much more important games than this one against the United States, which is why I think it is important, and, and clearly you do too, to sort of temper our expectations and our takeaways. And I basically wrote that after this game for Backfield. I, I wrote something along the lines of. There's, there's not a ton we can take away. Now, that's not to say there's nothing, and we'll spend an hour talking about some fun things we can take <laughs> away, because this game was awesome. Like, I also want to make sure we get that out there from the start. Yeah. This first half was the most fun I've had watching the U.S. play since, well, probably since the first 30 yep. minutes of the Germany game. But, like, <laughs> in general, it was awesome. And, and basically, yeah. every U.S. player who spoke to the media and whose comments have come out after last night's game said as much. Tim Weah was like, yeah, we were balling. Balogun was more involved. He talked mm-hmm. about that. Greg Berhalter was complimenting Gio Reyna, obviously, because Gio Reyna was really, really good in this game. Serginho Dest was cooking and said, basically, we want to do more. 
Like he was bummed we didn't smash Ghana by more. I think he used the word smash mm -hmm. in his post-game press conferences. Like this, this U.S. team put on an unbelievable performance in the first 45 minutes. Yep. It was so much fun to watch at the same time. And this is a things can be two things. It only means so much because it is Ghana and the U.S. Yep. should be expecting to beat teams like Ghana. Mexico just beat them 2-0. You said that, right? So there are levels to this game. And I think if we've learned one thing from this window, it's that the U.S. is still outside the global elite, which is not a surprise. They're still outside that top eight, maybe top, top nine or ten teams in the world. But they are in a position where they should be expected to go out there and, and not only win some of these games against lower quality teams like Ghana, but also play this kind of soccer, to play beautiful, aesthetic, chance-creating soccer. And that's exactly what they did last night. They sure did. And though that should be the expectation, they don't always uh, end up fulfilling that expectation, especially when the U.S. jumps out to early leads. We've often seen them take their foot off the gas just be a little bit more lackadaisical, and then the game doesn't end up as strongly as it started. That it's 4-0 at halftime and finishes 4-0 indicates that maybe there was a little bit of easing off, but not a lot. But I wanted to kind of get this conversation up front because, as I said in the Germany review, I felt like establishing that context was important because I felt like as the episode went on, I was probably more likely to get negative about some things. And I feel like with this one, it's the other way. I'm pretty likely to end up pretty positive. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I'm going to end up very, very, very happy because I am very happy about this game. But Joe, I'm guessing you were happy. I'm guessing you were also a little bit fatigued because it was a busy night for Joe Lowry. Uh, the U.S. game, then the U.S. U23s in person, a 4-0 win over Ghana, a 4-1 win over Japan for the U23s. Joe, how was that match in person in Phoenix? It was a lot of fun, a, a, a fun contingent of Japanese fans out there at Phoenix Rising Stadium. Not a big crowd for either of the U23 games that I, I went to, the, the win over Mexico last week and this slightly wider win over Japan last night. But it's fun to see some of these folks get out and have a chance to see their team play in person that they, they almost certainly would not have uh, in this part of the country. So I enjoyed that a lot. Marko Mitrovic, U23 national team coach for the U.S., went with a very different lineup, which makes sense as he's trying to evaluate the pool. So there were a lot of changes in this lineup for the United States. We saw Chris Brady in goal, who I thought acquitted himself well enough. I don't think he was he was particularly tested a ton by Japan, who played some good soccer. I want to be clear. It was just kind of for them like the story of the U.S. against Germany in some ways. Maybe not about the gap in quality, but they, they just couldn't quite get that final action inside the box, so they couldn't quite get their shots on frame. So I thought Japan showed some good stuff. But for the U.S., it was Benjamin Kramaski in midfield, and it was Paxton Aronson on the left wing that stood out to me the most. Then Duncan Maguire coming off the bench. Uh, he scores like 90 seconds after coming on off of a set piece from Jack McGlynn. All four of those players, I thought, showed well. And if their club situations don't preclude them from being involved next summer in Paris at a U23 competition, I would expect all of them to be there barring other circumstances. So you saw rotated teams, you saw different combinations of personnel. Did you see any areas of vulnerability? Because one consistent talking point when it comes to the U23s at the Olympics is that you can have those overage players. The U.S., when they qualify, if they qualify, tends to take them. So I'm wondering if you saw spots where maybe somebody who's slightly more of a veteran or just plays at a, at a slightly higher level more consistently might be able to elevate this team's performance. Center back is the biggest one. I think mm. it's it's center back, and then there's a pretty substantial gap, partially because Duncan Maguire came out and was very good in both of these games. He's been good at Major League Soccer, but still has a lot of work to do in terms of finding high-value spots, finding chances. He scored a lot of goals this year for Orlando, but is, is probably not doing that at a sustainable rate 
considering the, the chances he's finding. So I would expect a bit of a drop off next year, but you know that's only if he doesn't improve. And I think we are seeing him improve game after game after game. He doesn't start this game. It's Johan Gomez who starts at the number nine spot. But Maguire comes on and scores that goal that I just mentioned off of a, a set piece from Jack McGlynn. So I, I think Maguire has quieted. And even Johan Gomez, who I thought was was solid in both of his appearances in this camp, I think that's quieted some of the need to maybe bring in an overage number nine. That could still happen, by the way. But center back is very clearly the spot that I think Marko Mitrovic will be looking towards. It was Jonathan Tompkinson, who's been in the lower levels of, of England for a couple of years now, and Maximilian Dietz, who started both of these games. He plays for Goethe Firth, uh, Julian Green, club club of uh, you know USMNT legend Julian Green in the past as well. So neither one of those players, I thought, were great. Dietz, I thought, was good against Mexico last week. I thought he was the worst center back on the field for the U.S. against Japan last night, and Tompkinson was poor against Mexico and quiet and uninspiring against Japan. So that kind of tells you a bit about where those two are. Brandon Craig, Philadelphia Union youngster on loan with Austin FC, didn't really work out for him to close out this MLS season, but I thought he was the best center back we saw from the U.S. coming off the bench in both games. But don't be surprised if when Jalen Neal's healthy, he is getting starts on the road to Paris and maybe even starting in Paris. And if it's somebody like, I don't know, Matt Miazga or... You could pick almost any center back out of a hat. I've seen a, not I've seen a lot of people. People. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people throwing out Walker Zimmerman as a sure. possibility for like a veteran leadership ability. I love that. He was at the the game last night for the U.S. as well for the USMNT game. Even though he wasn't called in, maybe there's you know reasons why that was the case with Nashville still finishing up their seasons. I don't know what that looks like, but he and Tim Ream had a nice uh, flowing locks moment on the sidelines, and I enjoyed that quite a bit. <laughs> Um, one other question for you from that game. I saw Indiana Vasilev uh, leaving in the first half, I'm assuming due to injury. Uh, was, how bad did that look, or did it just seem like maybe a a sort of safety uh, uh, substitution? Yeah, honestly, Taylor, I, I wish I had a better answer to this. I couldn't tell from where I was sitting. The vantage point in the press box is, is not good for where that substitution occurred, and the same with Dietz in the first half who came off. And I asked U.S. Soccer about... You know, were those injuries because both of those players, Vasilev started on the right wing, was not good before he came off in this game. I asked if those were injury related or not, and and I was told you know, there's a chance that they were pre-planned in the first game against Mexico. Players are coming off like Taylor Booth came off inside 30 minutes. Right. And so there were some oh, very early, early, early pre-planned subs. I thought the Dietz one for sure looked like an injury and it, it maybe wasn't worth risking putting him back in, even if he could have gone And the same is is likely true for Vasilev. But I, I, nobody should hold me to that because I, I really couldn't tell. Uh, I lied. I have one more question for you, uh, or maybe a couple. Did you get to talk <laughs> to any players after the game, or was it mostly yeah. just the manager? Did anybody pop in those conversations? That, that's the, I'm always interested in the young players, who comes across the most polished, who has the most interesting stuff in a good way uh, to say, as opposed to like, this team is bad, I don't like it. Yeah, there were a decent number of players that we got to talk to over the course of, of both of these games. Last night, it was Paxton Aronson, Duncan McGuire, and Bernard Camungo. Uh, and mm-hmm. I thought all three of them came across really well. Paxton is certainly the the best spoken and sort of most uh, charismatic of those three. But Duncan McGuire, I asked him a bit about, you know, we, we've heard there's been some MLS banter from players with John Tolkien and Indiana Vasilev maybe talking a bit of smack about playing style and stuff like that for the Red Bulls in St. Louis. And I asked Duncan McGuire about that, and, and he sort of said, yeah, Indy's a, a big character. And so we got some insight <laughs> into camp from these guys. Duncan McGuire, I never had a chance to talk to him before, and he he seems like a, a super nice down-to-earth guy. And then Bernard Camungo, I had a chance to ask him a bit more about this next step and his story. For folks that don't know his story, from Tanzania, was a refugee, moved to Abilene, Texas, which is, I'm sure, an incredibly jarring transition. Yep. 
played high school soccer. His brother put down 90 bucks for him to try out with North Texas SC in, in USL League One. Gets on that squad, signs a pro deal with FC Dallas last year, and is now playing for the United States at the international level. It's an awesome story. And so I got to ask him some questions. I'm going to try to transcribe some of those quotes and get those out there either on Twitter or on Backheeled over the next few hours. We'll see if I can make that happen or not. But yeah, all, all three of those guys were, were very courteous with their time. North Texas, like quietly crazy important when it comes to development of players for the U.S. men's <laughs> national team. Pepe's played there. Uh, uh, Ferreira's played there. I forget who 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 is it who plays for Haiti who's played there as well, but there's plenty of other uh, of other talents that have come through there. I do love me some North, North Texas, even when they were tearing apart the Richmond Kickers. But enough about the U23s for now. One other little bit of housekeeping: uh, we had the mention in the broadcast last night, but also the reporting that Michael Bradley is going to be retiring at the end of the season. Uh, I will probably end up pushing Graham or maybe Joe to join me for a Soccer 101 episode about Michael Bradley. The player, why he was so important to the United States, and maybe also why there is such animosity towards Michael Bradley from a large section of the U.S. fan base. But just wanted to acknowledge a player who is so important for the U.S. men's national team, I think was a pillar of stability at times for the team and for his various clubs, but also had sort of breakthrough performances at various points in his club career in Europe, and I think was just such an important player for so long for the U.S. So worth uh, acknowledging the work done by Michael Bradley a person I very much assume will end up in a management position at some point. I doubt we see him just kind of go off and hang out. I I think he comes back in, gets some coaching badges, and steps right into a management role. We'll see how it goes. Uh, But Joe, any thoughts on Michael Bradley, or should we move on to the USA's win over Ghana? I think you said it well. I'd echo that, so we can move on on to the Ghana game. So we've, we've had our disclaimer a little bit, that this is a Ghana team that, at least for me, I thought was going to be a stronger team. There are certainly areas of vulnerability. You already laid out how they've had some problems in their results, but there is still plenty of talent there. For the United States, we had a few lineup changes. We had a few, I wouldn't say surprises, but seeing Johnny start in the, in the middle of that midfield, I I did not expect to see. I definitely did not expect to see Gio Reyna start this game. I thought maybe after his appearance, they would give him a rest. Maybe we would get a substitute cameo. I thought more likely is that he would either be, on the sidelines, not risking it or already back in Dortmund. But to see Reyna start and to have, I thought, a really all-action first 15 minutes to get a brace, I really enjoyed what I saw from Gio Reyna last night. Yeah, Gio Reyna, I thought, had a fantastic first 45 minutes showing that he can boss these games. And that's that's really what he did. Fulon Balogun, I thought, was, was right up there in terms of actions on the ball, his impact when he had the ball at his feet. Both of those players, I thought, were excellent. I'll run through the lineup just very, very quickly. Matt Turner in goal, Serginho Dest at right back, shifting over from the left, where we saw him against Germany. Miles Robinson as that right-sided center back. Chris Richards as a left-sided center back in a back four. Christopher Lund steps in and started at left back in this game that put Joe Scally on the bench. In midfield, it was Johnny Cardoso and Yunus Musa, really as the two slightly deeper midfielders to start, with Gio Reyna floating ahead of them and just to the side, and sometimes even behind them in possession. He had a much freer role than those two but defending higher up the field, typically next to Faloran Balogun, though he would drop a, a bit as well. It was pretty man-oriented, I thought, from the U.S. In, in their midfield, pressing on Ghana's midfielders. And then the front line, you had Tim Weah on the right side, Christian Pulisic on the left side, and Faloran Balogun up top. Taylor, you spotlighted Gio Reyna. I think that's a, a great thing to do because I, I think it is incredibly valuable that we got another 45 minutes from Gio Reyna in this game from a USMNT perspective, both because he and Faloran Balogun can continue to build a relationship Also, 
from a, just a Gio Reyna fitness standpoint, Greg Berhalter had a quote earlier this week, I believe, talking about how they wanted to send Gio back to Dortmund, you know, basically better off than, than where he came. That wasn't a slight at Dortmund, and I, I paraphrased that quote and I kind of butchered it, but the idea is getting him back so he can continue to ramp up with Dortmund, not like, oh, I didn't play in a week, we don't have a game till the weekend, I'm not really fit, I'm not in this rhythm. No, the U.S. wanted to send him back in rhythm, and I think they did I think they did just that, while also getting you know, more reps from Gio Reyna in the USMNT shirt, which is something that just hasn't happened a lot for him throughout his entire U.S. career. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the opening minutes of this game, how it evolved, some of the goals, some individual performers, much, much more still to come back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, let's start with the U.S.'s opening uh, 10 minutes or so, which does end up in a goal. We get a goal inside 10 minutes. That's no small feat. But a thing that I noticed right away was the U.S. on the defensive side of the ball. Mm. And I did not feel like they were trying to press as much. I think there were certain pressing triggers, and I think there were moments when individually they were they would press, and then as a unit they would press. But for the most part, what I saw was the U.S. with a higher line of engagement, but sort of sitting off and keeping numbers central, and I think really inviting balls out wide for Ghana, which they didn't often want to take. I saw a lot of just sort of center back to the goalkeeper, to the center back, to a center back out wide, and then either like a pass out of bounds or a pass long. And so an initial note I had was basically that my, my assumption was Ghana were like strongly dominating possession in the first 10 minutes, but doing absolutely nothing with it. And and so to me, that was already a, a statement of intent for the U.S., that they weren't going to kind of let this be wide open and back and forth. They were, I think, evolving from what they learned against Germany, and it felt like they put themselves in better positions to limit Ghana's build, limit their ability to find open passes through the middle, and really limit their ability to do much at all. Ghana had very, very few chances in this game. Mohamed Kudush puts a, a lovely strike on frame that Matt yeah. Turner has to save, but that's like a, a wonder strike that the U.S. defend well in this game, in, in the first half. The U.S., I thought, were, were very strong defensively. Ghana, their their talent is stacked towards the attack. Mohamed Kudush plays in the Premier League, is a very, very talented young player, was excellent at the World Cup, and Aki Williams starts in this game. You get Ayu in this game. These are These are high-level players. That sort of fades. Thomas Partey in midfield, you know, maybe may their best overall player. But you get to the back line, and we're looking at Turkey. We're looking at, I believe, one Liga player, two or three Ligue 2 players, and then their goalkeeper. From what I read, is Gagosanina's backup at Yupin in Belgium. So it is very stratified in terms of the talents at the top, and it drops off as you as you sort of work your way into the back line and in goal. That said, I would agree with you, Taylor. I think you could see some of the response from the Germany game, at least, you know, in as much as you can respond against a team like Ghana that's going to play slower, 
worse and, and differently than a team like Germany. But one of the things that Greg Berhalter brought up, and we talked about it on this show, Taylor, before his press conference on Monday, when we did our show over the weekend, the U.S. against Germany struggled to get pressure to zone 14. That space just out the t- outside the top of the box. Yunus Musa and Weston McKenney against Germany would sort of join up in the back line and you'd end up with nobody stepping towards the ball. Berhalter talked about that. He's like, we need to get our, our block. We need to get four in the back. We need to get either four or three acro- across the midfield and be able to protect that space. And I thought the U.S. did a much better job of that in this game to the point where you can see Imagine if you're like coaching a youth soccer player and and you give them a very specific instruction. It's very simple, but it's very specific. And you go and you send them back out on the field and immediately you can see their brain processing it and trying to actually put it into practice. We saw that against Ghana. The U.S. very clearly were pressuring that part of the field. Their their block was very clear deeper downfield. And I felt like that was a good sign, even if Ghana wasn't going to punish the U.S. the same way that, that they were punished by Germany. Exactly. Yeah, I think, and this is why we have that conversation up front about the relative strength of Ghana versus the strength of Germany. Uh, because with the U.S.'s approach, I did also see that the back line stayed a little bit deeper, especially when the front line would move forward. And oftentimes you then had a, a 4-2-4 or even like a 4-1-5 for the U.S. And Ghana weren't able to exploit that, I think, because of where they took up their positions, where their their runners were. But I think a stronger team like Germany is going to then send numbers in behind or into the middle, and they're going to kind of play one over the top of that first line, and then you're going to have tons of space. So I think, in a way, I really liked what the U.S. was doing. It also kind of gives us things to keep an eye on going forward as to how do they nullify some of that threat. But I think when Ghana weren't trying to uh, basically exploit that, you don't really need to worry about it. And so instead, you can just continue to play your your primary game, and the U.S., did exactly that. And and I was also, as I said, really struck by how patient they were and how much communication there was. Uh, uh, Gio Reyna a lot. I had Gio Reyna one, two, three, four, four times in my opening notes being all over the place and not in the negative, like, wow, he was all over the place, but in a like, wow, he is getting all over the place in this game and really te- like like gesturing for people to step up, gesturing p- for people to move wider. I think communicating a lot, calling for the ball, making runs. It felt like we saw him, I think, more involved in this team. And, and, and it didn't seem to be a source of frustration or consternation. So again, it felt to me like there was more fluidity and communication with this U.S. team, especially in the opening 10 to 20 minutes. I would agree with that. And I'll I'll flip it around to look at the U.S.'s attack in this game. Mm -hmm. We talked about how they engage Ghana at times higher up the field, mostly out of that 4-4-2 shape. It would be Balogun and Gio Reyna sort of trying to block off Ghana's midfielders with their cover shadows. So they would try to block off some of those passing lanes. But even that didn't happen all the time because you also had Yunus Musa bumping forward from midfield to go and step towards Partey or to go and step towards the other midfielder in that space. And so... The U.S. in general, I thought, did a pretty good job of dealing with Ghana defensively. And Ghana's threat, again, compared to Germany, was was limited overall. But if you flip it around, I don't know if this surprised you, Taylor. It surprised me a bit at how aggressive Ghana were defensively. We talked about the U.S. picked their moments. Ghana were willing to go and step forward. Even early on in this match, they were willing to go when the scoreline's still nil-nil and try to get in the U.S.'s grill. They weren't pressing all out all the time. But the U.S. had to do a little bit of, of combination play inside their own box to break forward and find space. And maybe the most encouraging thing for me in this entire game, at least at a macro level, was how comfortable the U.S. looked doing that stuff. And and we, we banged the, the context drum over and over again. I'll do it here. I don't need to add any more than that. But 
I was I was pleasantly surprised by how comfortable and confident the U.S. looked building through little bits of pressure. I sort of had this impression after last night, which I mentioned was a bit, a bit of a whirlwind. Watching this game, watched the first half, drove over to the Phoenix Rising Stadium, caught up on the second half, finished an article, watched the second game. I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff going on yesterday. I went back and rewatched this this first half this morning and was left with a, a even a bit more of a positive impression of what the U.S. did in the first 45 minutes because I came away yesterday thinking this Ghana team was way too open. They were way too gappy. And I think that was true. I don't think they made the right tactical choices to leave this game so open against a more talent-rich U.S. team. But the U.S. had to do some work to break through Ghana. The U.S. had to play. They had to combine. They had to play quickly. They had to check a lot of those boxes that you want a really good possession team to check. And I thought the first goal was a great example of this. I have down in my notes in all caps, so good, because it was a lovely sequence. The U.S. worked the ball towards the left side, then they bring it over to the right side. It's Robinson to Dest. Dest cuts inside. Dest was on one in this game, by the way. He continues upfield, combines with Balogun. Balogun flicks it to Dest. Dest drives forward, plays it back to Balogun, who then plays across low and hard, intending to find Christian Pulisic at the back post. It doesn't make it all the way through, but the ball then falls to a crashing Giorena, who picks it out of the air really, really well and scores. And it's 1-0 to the U.S. They were so confident. They were so skillful on the ball in those moments. That, I was, I'll be honest, I was mm-hmm. pretty impressed by. As was I. And I think you are correct to spotlight the aggressiveness of Ghana early. Uh, that's something I believe Chris Hutton talked about after the Mexico loss, but also prior to these friendlies, that they needed to kind of go out and make a statement, uh, get involved in the match early, dictate the style of play. And so to see them applying that pressure higher up the pitch, also, I think, happy for the game to be physical at times, I think very much less so as the game goes on. And I think the U.S. stuck with that physicality, which is a thing I really enjoyed. Uh, but but the way Ghana seemed to try to put the U.S. on their heels a little bit or make the United States uncomfortable, uh, especially in possession, stood out to me because it largely did not work. They have a few moments when they win the ball higher up, but a lot of that is individual errors. Like the one that stands out is uh, Lund plays the ball to Balogun, but it's a hospital pass. And I think also the mic is close enough that you can hear him not give any instructions. So Balogun gets crushed a little bit, going to get the ball. And then the U.S. just has their defensive positioning. They win it back. So... There was that aggressiveness. There was that intent. And that's why I agree with you. It stands out all the more that the U.S., rather than recycle possession constantly or play kind of safe lateral passes or just lumping it long, looked for quick combinations to exploit some of that pressing. And I think largely were successful. You you spotlighted that first goal. Those quick little passing combinations, the quick movement off the ball, it just completely disorients Ghana. And I think even the penalty is a good example of that, where there's just a directness in the runs, a directness in the play, and a willingness to take on. It's a horrifically clumsy challenge by Mensa, the the left back, and he ends up uh, coming out at halftime because he was just all over the place in the bad way. Not in the Gio Reyna good way, but in the bad way. Uh, and, And so I think for Ghana, that they came out with the approach they did uh, was maybe not as much of a surprise, but for the United States to just completely nullify it and play through it and then play their game the way they wanted to, sort of largely unchecked, I think has to be a positive. And so it's the type of result that then makes me look at our games against CONCACAF opposition. We won't have any World Cup qualifiers, so we're not going to have any away days in El Salvador or Honduras or whatever. But so often those games are cautious, defensive, don't make mistakes, get away with a draw, get away with a 1-0 win. 
And I look at this team now and, and I don't think I would be happy with that. I don't think that's a satisfactory result to me because they are capable of playing against a team that in Ghana is open, but I think they can, they can sort of take the game to people and pass it through. And, and it was an evolution in a way for me and my understanding of this U.S. team Still not maybe a, a team that I think is going to be able to play wide open, expansive football against Germany or Brazil. But I, I, w- I would say progress uh, nonetheless. It's kind of like a checkpoint, right? So I'm thinking of it like maybe mm-hmm. you're playing Mario or something like that, right? And you get to that little short flag and, and you don't have to go back through and, and play the whole level again when you inevitably die after the checkpoint. You can just start from there. It feels like this this performance against Ghana gives us a benchmark for this team against lower quality sides that still have talent. You know, Ghana was in a World Cup you know, eight months ago or whatever that World Cup was, right? So they, they have played high-level games recently, even though I, I don't believe that they're a very good team. The U.S. showed what they can do against a team like Ghana. Now it's, well, what can they do against a, a much, much, much better team? And that is still an open question after this window. And I, I honestly love that we got to have that discussion after the Germany game. And I think it presents fascinating ones ahead of the Copa America next summer. Should the U.S. qualify by taking care of business? We, we think it's going to be Trinidad and Tobago next month for I believe there's a two-legged game that's going to get the U.S. to the Copa America. But that is an encouragement, I think, if you're a U.S. M&T fan, is how clean, how crisp this first half was, how dominant the U.S. was. They played Ghana off the field. There was not a single moment where I thought this Ghana team is legitimately threatening the United States right now. And there were a dozen, if not more, of those moments for the United States in the first half. The one thing I'll add on that, you know, I mentioned this being a checkpoint against an inferior team, I do sort of wonder still how much that applies against a team that's going to play in a low block, right? Ghana really didn't do that. Yes, they were forced backwards at times, but they they didn't look comfortable there. They wanted to push forward. They wanted to be setting their line of confrontation much, much higher, which made yeah, in a lot they, of ways... I think to jump in real quick, I think to your earlier point, recognized our strengths are in the attack and further up the pitch. And if we win the ball higher up and get it to those attacking players, that's probably better than playing in a low block with defenders who maybe are going to stick a leg out for five seconds and take somebody down. Yeah, man, that that sticking the leg out really throws a whole (laughs) wrench in a team's ability to play a low block because I think Ghana would have been so much better off defending deep because they were totally outclassed. Almost every time they tried to step up and press, the U.S. made made them look like Swiss cheese, right? So I think there will be teams that take a much smarter approach. I think there'll be inferior teams on talent that take a much smarter approach to defending against the U.S., that set up shop, that play a 5-4-1, that play a 4-4-2 inside their own defensive third. And when those games come, I'm just getting out, I'm just getting this out there now, the U.S. will look bad at times because every team in the world looks bad when they're trying to break down a low block because it's really, really hard. It's the hardest thing to do in soccer. So I just wanted to get that out there into the the ether because there'll be times when we look back and say, well, the U.S. smoked Ghana. Ghana's better than Trinidad and Tobago. Like, why aren't they able to beat Trinidad and Tobago in the same way? And they should still be beating those teams. They should still be creating chances against those teams. But it will be more difficult at times and it will look a lot worse because I think Ghana's tactical approach was just so naive and it very clearly did not work. It's an interesting point. I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to give you time to think about it while I make one more point on the U.S. attack. Joe, for the next round of friendlies uh, where we don't have opponents scheduled, so sometime in 2024, early 2024, if we're going to get some friendlies, who is a team that you would like the U.S. to schedule as a friendly opponent that will likely play in more of a bunker or will sort of sit deep and counter. So somebody like maybe Wales at the World Cup who have the talent to play on the counter but are also going to kind of be capable of sitting deep and frustrating. Who do you think would be a good opponent for the U.S. to play if they want to practice playing against that style? While you think about that, I will say 
Because I think you're absolutely right that there needs to be maybe more patterns against teams that are going to make it difficult. Because in this game, another thing that stood out to me in how the U.S. attacked was just how multifaceted it was. Sometimes it was slow and patient buildup and good possession, uh, moving the ball slowly up the pitch. Sometimes it was slow and patient possession in the back and then quick transitions to attack via a couple passes. Sometimes it was direct balls in behind, usually for Tim Weah. Uh, sometimes it was individual dribbles. And that all felt really exciting at the same time when you then kind of think about how open Ghana were at times, how much they were trying to take the game to the U.S. in the first 15, 20 minutes. You wonder against a maybe deeper, more defense-minded opponent, how would that look? How would the U.S. play? So I loved all the different aspects of the attack I saw in this one, but it does still leave that lingering question of, are they able to then break down a like medium strength team that is right. more dedicated to defense? Yep. I think that's a, an open question still for the United States because they haven't had a lot of those games, right? It's been a few games against the top teams, a decent number of mediocre matches and, and a few mid tier teams kind of sprinkled in between and, and Ghana, I'd say after this performance, getting to watch them up close probably slips down into a, a lower tier in terms of how I view them in, in, in international soccer. A couple of the teams that come to mind, Taylor, really are some of the ones that the U.S. played at the World Cup. Iran was was pretty comfortable giving the U.S. a decent amount of the ball. The same would go for Wales. I think maybe you could climb a little bit higher up that ladder. Ladder. Think of Uruguay in the past, but they are different now under Marcelo Bielsa, and you're not getting a, a climbable team regardless, right? So that almost is, is a moot point. But I think the idea there is spot on of wanting to get the U.S. more games against teams that will sort of force them to break them down. At the same time, I think you still want games against the best of the best, too. And how you schedule those games and who you can find at all. Man, I don't envy U.S. soccer because the options are limited. Let's get a TSS Derby. Let's get Scotland in there. Uh, I feel like that sure. would be fine. Although I don't I'm know into how that. bunkered they would be, but I think that would be they, quite they fun. Would, I they would know. bunker. They would, I think they would be bunkered against the U.S. Yeah, we need we need a like a a a series of games against England and then Scotland and then Scotland and England play each other in a friendly and then we can have full on derbies across the board for TSS. Yes. Uh, for now, Joe, we're going to take one more break and we're going to come back to talk about some individual performances back soon. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between, but no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. We are still having fun talking about the U.S.'s win over Ghana. We talked a little bit about Gio Reyna and his individual work last night. We've talked a little bit about Serginho Dest. Joe, are there any individual performers, positive or negative, you wanted to spotlight? Balogun. <clears throat> Balogun. Balogun. Yeah. Balogun. Balogun yeah. is, is, yeah. is my answer yeah. to that yeah. question. Yeah. Scores a goal for the United States in the 22nd minute of this game. The U.S. Yeah, press high, win the ball high up the field after a it's, it's a woeful touch from Ghana inside their own third. Then it's with Tim Weah who picks up that ball, plays it to Balogun, who spins with a lovely first touch. So he sort of cushions it with the inside of his foot and spins to create an angle for himself all in one motion, and then scores with his left foot on the very next movement. It's so fluid. It is, it's one of those pure goal scorer goals, Taylor, that I honestly felt like, and this is why part of my brain is broken, the, the moment it made me think of, and, and the, the first place my brain went was Josh Sargent. Oh, no. At the, oh, shoot, well, that would have oh, been the no. U20 World Cup, you, I think, back in, in 2017. <laughs> oh, no. Like, we just, we never see U.S. number nines score these pure goal scorer kind of goals. Yeah. And that's exactly what this was. It was lethal from Valoran Balogun, which ties back to what I've been saying about this guy all along. Like, he is a legitimately elite striker in the global sense it's still early, 22 years old. We've never seen him play at a high level outside of Ligue 1, which is, at best, the fifth league in Europe. There's more for him to climb, and I'm sure he would tell you that. He seems like a very down-to-earth, level-headed guy from, from the few times I've had a chance to talk to him. 
Like he is so good at so many things. And with the conversation after the Germany game from Greg Berhalter, from the players, was like, we need to activate Florin Balogun more. That's the word Greg Berhalter used. They were not finding him against Germany nearly as often as they should have. And in this game, Christian Pulisic, two minutes in, has a chance to play a one-touch ball to Balogun at the top of the box and doesn't do it. And when I saw yeah. that, I thought, oh boy, this is yep. going to be a, a bit of a long night. It was going to be a hard pass and it might not have come off. But the U.S. seems so risk averse. Was it? It seemed. It seemed like maybe if he plays that first time, that ball is in. But it, I hear you. I think you're yeah. being charitable. I'm less inclined in that one. That's and that's fair, right? Maybe maybe it's somewhere down the middle. Maybe maybe you're right on that. I don't I don't have a strong preference there. But it starts off in this game, and I think, oh man, mm-hmm. we're in for for more after that Germany game. That was not the case. Balogun was dropping. He was getting touches. There wasn't there wasn't as much space in behind Ghana as there was against Germany. Even though I just talked about Ghana being too open and them stepping high. Germany dominated the ball against the U.S., and so they were higher up the field more consistently even than this Ghana team. The space was behind against Germany. The space was sometimes behind against Ghana, and I thought the U.S. did a decent job of finding him in those moments. But really, the space was Balgan dropping to get touches, shifting wide to combine with Weah and Reina and Dest, and I thought he did that stuff brilliantly, capped it off with a goal, had some other great chances. This guy is so good and will eat these lower-tier teams alive and did that last night couple points there uh starting with the one you mentioned uh with Pulisic maybe not playing that ball in I feel like he could have if he played a little bit faster uh but then the next aspect of that sequence is the U.S. gets the ball it goes to Johnny Johnny uh threads one really well for Balogun who turns and shoots and so even there I was heartened to see that he does end up getting a shooting uh, opportunity Balogun but to your point after the Germany game Joe about how the U.S. maybe isn't like it's not they're not playing at his level, but I think your argument being that, that maybe they're slow to find him, they're not as quick to get the ball into his feet, or they're not sort of playing the ball into areas where he wants the ball played. I don't think I fully saw that in that game, but to see how much of a difference maker he can be in this game, I f- fully and further understand where you're coming from because that goal is a goal that I don't think many U.S. strikers can score. And it's then hilarious that you connected to Josh Sargent with the U-20s. But the thing because that I'm broken to inside, me, to be continue. <laughs> well, but the thing that stood out to me, so uh, again, to, to outline it for people who haven't yet seen it, first of all, what are you doing? You should watch that goal. But it is, yeah, Weah wins it. He plays the ball into Balogun. You said in step, it looked to me a little bit more like he puts his foot on the ball and rolls it. Uh, and But either way, the thing that I thought was so impressive is that it it is played behind him a little bit and Balogun as he's adjusting to it and making sure that he's able to get control of it I think a different striker is now back to goal they hold it up and then they wait for maybe Gio Reyna to make a late late arriving run you lay it off and hope that Reyna can shoot and Balogun by contrast as he's adjusting his body to receive he also just throws a little teeny tiny feint in there as though he is going to try to hit this first time with his instep and Apoku the right center back uh Apoku the left center back had lost the ball uh so it was I believe Nicholas Apoku who had to try to come over and make a play he fully bites on that tiny feint and he over over pursues and is completely removed from the play but the goalkeeper also dives like basically loses his footing expecting a shot to come and falls over and then Balogun just rolls it the other way, hits it with his left, tings it off the post, and in we go. But there was such a a presence of mind and awareness to know I need to control this. I want to put myself in a shooting opposition or shooting position, but I also want to throw off the opposition with that little feint. And he does all of those so expertly, but with such tight control. It was truly a moment of like 
that was a great goal, but there's also so much that went into it that I can see some of that next level ability that had you so hyped, Joe. This is all my way of saying that I, I would like to trade for him when we did our U.S. draft. <laughs> you got him as a striker, and I, and I think it's only fair that uh, you gave him up, and, and I give you... I don't, can't remember who I drafted uh, in there that I definitely don't want now. But uh, yeah, Balogun, really good, man. Really, yeah. really, really good. And just a problem player for uh, opposition defenses. So now I know that Taylor's the guy offering these absurd trades in fantasy football that just get ignored, Maybe. that don't even get Maybe. responses. Uh, I mean, the, a huge part of why... The Cleveland Balogun... Browns defense for your starting <laughs> running back. Yes, yes. That's what I'm feeling like right now, Taylor. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not yep. super inclined to accept, just to let you know that verbally. Um, man... Part of what makes Balogun so good is just how well-rounded he is, right? So we talked about against Germany, not finding him as much in behind. His his sense of when to make those movements and when to make the run, and he did that some in this game as well, is is so good. Like, he'll throw out a hand, he'll make that run at the right time, he'll stretch the back line, he can do that stuff. The U.S. have other players, though, who can do that stuff. Ricardo Pepe, his biggest asset, I think, is his frame, his long stride, his ability to, to, to sort of do something similar, right, and to make that move behind the back line. Balogun does it better. I think he's done it at a higher level for longer at this point in his career, so he still gets the edge there, but stretching the line doesn't make you unique in the U.S. player pool. Something that does make you unique, though, is adding to that ability to stretch the line and ability to drop in and combine, and he did that, right? He was involved in the first U.S. goal. Tim Weah steps up and draws the penalty on the second goal, but Balogun is sort of involved in and around that play as well. The U.S. press, and, and Balogun's got the third goal after that, and then he's involved on the fourth goal as well in that weird inside-the-box moment for the United uh, yeah. States, that indirect free kick. Like, he's around the danger. He is able to drop in and, and link play, play with his back to goal. We saw that against Germany. We saw even more of that in this game against Ghana. And the last thing, I think this is probably the most valuable thing. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. He can create his own shot. And we see that on this goal. I think about the other strikers in the U.S. pool. Ricardo Pepe, Jesus Ferreira, you know, if he's still in and around this pool. Haji Wright, Josh Sargent. Like, can, can those guys create their own shot? Can they create that little bit of separation? Are they good enough on the ball and quick enough and decisive enough to do that? I don't think so. Or at least not consistently. And certainly not at the level of Fallor and Balakin. And in this moment, yeah, Tim Weah does great work on the right side. He continues to always be around the danger in the final third, and he is the locked-in starter on the right wing for me going forward, especially with Girona looking so comfortable in midfield. Tim Weah does good work, but Balogun has to finish this playoff. I can't tell you how many other times we would have seen other U.S. strikers not not have mm-hmm. the composure inside the box, not have the touch, not have the awareness to Again, do what Balogun does here. It's ridiculous. I don't think a lot of them would have gotten a shot off. Like, no, th- exactly. That, that is the difference for me, yeah. 100%. And, and I mean, you know me. I care less about whether the shot finds the back of the net and more about where the shot was taken from in the first place. And if there was a shot taken Nerd. at all, right? And Balogun's, yes. And Balogun's ability <laughs> to turn nothing into something is like the most valuable skill yep. a striker can have. And man, I could I could talk about him for an hour. He is He's just that good. And I'm not trying to take shots at the other strikers in the pool because there is talent there. And I think certainly Ricardo Pepe has been improving and scoring goals for the U.S. Agreed. But But I think when you have... Uh, to go with the fantasy football analogy, when you have a running back by committee sort of situation where you have a bunch of different running backs who do different things at different points, and sometimes one has a good game, and sometimes they kind of fall off and don't get as much, everyone sort of seems to be in that same pool, and it's hard to feel like, okay, we've got a difference maker, but also you don't feel like you have a player that's going to elevate and either bring everybody with them or at the very least, establish a high bar that others need to meet if they want to overtake. And that felt like the situation with the U.S. striker pool for so long that we were like, 
Maybe it's Josh Sargent who can do it. Maybe it's Ricardo Pepe. Maybe it's Brandon Vasquez. Maybe it's Haji Wright. Like, I think we kept sort of hopefully looking for, for opportunities or for players who could either establish themselves as that number nine amongst number nines, or at the very least could help elevate the position such that everyone has to improve or evolve their game. And I don't feel like we had that until Balogun. And now it does seem, you know, there's no surprise to me that he starts both of these games. And I think about other uh, international breaks and where we would have seen maybe one striker starts one game, one striker starts the next and and a different one gets substitutions in both games. It's really nice to feel like we know, a large chunk of who the starters are going to be with a few permutations along the way. But Balogun, I think, is so much a difference maker and is playing at a higher level that it's a, it's a comforting thing to have him in there. Uh, it was a comforting thing to have Serginho Dest starting uh, at the right back <laughs> spot and looking very good on the ball. A reminder that Dest, when he is feeling confident and in form and empowered is a very, very fun Serginho Dest to have, including when he has his weird little moment in the second half of the like back heels it into his instep to then pass it the other way. Like a deliberate little move that did not need to happen. But when Dest is feeling it, he is feeling it. But in between, he has the the run where I think you said he went through like 57 different Ghanaian players somehow, <laughs> even though there were only 11 on the pitch. Um, and and I think also his long ball distribution, uh, there, there's one over the top that he hits like a good 60-yard ball for, I think it's Balogun, who had dropped in, held the ball up, played it to Dest, spun in behind, and then Dest plays him a perfectly weighted ball. There was just a lot of variety to Serginho Dest's game. It made me very happy. It also made me feel like I would prefer to just have him as the right back and mm. we don't see him move from position to position as much. I'm not sure why that is other than just that I, I feel like if he's able to know where he's playing, where he's starting, what position he's going to be taking and who he's going to be playing with, because we would assume it's Tim Weah for the time being. I feel like he needs that consistency and those reps to kind of play to the level that we expect when you move him around and ask him to do different things. I'm not sure right now, at least, that that is suiting his skill set. I think I agree with that. And and maybe because I think it's, it's weird, a fascinating though, right? discussion. It's sort of like he hasn't been bad at left back. Right. It's just like I think he's better as a right back. Yeah. And, and a lot of it kind of depends on Jenna Robinson's fitness, right? Because if Jenna sure. Robinson's in the team, I think he's still the obvious starter at left back and and. I think he's yeah. one of the players at the biggest risk of being replaced before 2026 if a good mm-hmm. left back were to sprout. But Jenna Robinson, for now, is it's still pretty clearly, in my mind, the best option on the left. Why do you think that? I think, I'm not saying I disagree. No, but I, I think Robinson does a ton of good off the ball and works really, really hard defensively and is an incredible athlete. I think he's still limited on the ball. His his level is is fairly high given the other mm-hmm. options in the U.S. pool. But if you think about the guys who can combine and help the U.S. build and do a lot of those valuable things in possession, Jedi Robinson isn't one of the first ones that comes to mind for me. Interesting and a good point, but all I heard there was that you're more of a Star Trek guy than a Star Wars guy. Is that pretty Uh, much what it is? You know what? Actually, Star Trek is still probably number two on my list, but again, I'm a nerd and I I do quite enjoy some Star Trek. I think Next Gen (laughs) is, is really, really good. Deep Space Nine is solid as well. Um, I can I can how go have deeper you into seen this. those programs. I don't um, understand. Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they <laughs> jumped the queue, given all the other things I haven't seen. It's a little concerning, uh, but they're good. I enjoyed it. Anyway, getting yes. back to Serginho Dest. Fine. He was awesome on the right side. And I, I think I think the right side is pretty clearly where he's better. And I think mm-hmm. overall, even when Jedi Robinson isn't around, I would rather stick Christopher Lund or even Joe Scally 
as and, and just kind of condemn them to being the boring fullback for that game and telling them to stay a little <laughs> bit deeper. And Des is going to go do his thing on the right side because, Taylor, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a better performance from Sergio Dest for the U.S. men's national team. Maybe there's a game or two in World Cup qualifying. Uh, maybe even there's a, a friendly sort of back in that in that dark ages of 2020 towards the end of that year. He's had good games before, but man, he was awesome in this game. It wasn't just him doing that, you know, ridiculous street ball kind of stuff. That insane run in the 30th minute, which I feel like is going to get the Gio Reyna against Mexico in World Cup qualifying treatment where he slaloms through 90 people and eventually gets set to classical music in slow motion. We're going to get that from somebody if it hasn't already been made. But it wasn't just those ball progression things because we know how comfortable Dest is on the ball. We know how willing he is to take it under pressure, slalom through some guys and go forward. Maybe not always to this extent, but we know it. The thing that I thought was different for Dest in this game was his end product. Man, he was getting into the final third and delivering the final ball. Like, that has been the biggest thing in the attack. Defensively, there's other issues, right, that we talked about against Germany. In the attack, that's been his biggest uh, issue, is, is just he's not dangerous enough when the ball reaches the final third. Yeah, he can get you there, but when he gets in the final third, he's just not doing enough. And in this game, I thought he did enough. Like, he was driving down the right side, had pinpoint crosses to Florin Balogun on multiple occasions, one under pressure and then one in the 31st minute where he has a lot more time to deliver a ball but he was sharp in the final third. And if we can see more of this Sergio Dest, like that, that changes mm-hmm. the calculus a bit for the U.S. Yep. Uh, on the opposite side of the pitch, we had uh, Lund starting at left back. Uh, we had Johnny at central midfield, Johnny Cardoso. And I thought both of them had good games for sure. Um, there, I guess there's a butt coming, but not like a full capital butt. Uh, it just felt to me like they were, they were fine in this one. I did worry about them on the ball in possession against stronger opposition or opposition that's pressing in a more coordinated and difficult way. Um, Johnny at times just like you could see him being a little bit slower to process and pass the ball twice. Yunus Musa makes a sort of check away, check to looping run where he wants the ball played ahead of him to then one time it into space for Tim Weah. And both times Johnny plays it, a little bit behind, a little bit too wide. Uh, one time, it's just straight to a Ghanaian player who then could have counterattacked, but doesn't because Ghana were bad. Uh, but those sort of moments when I think you have to elevate your processing and just play a little bit faster, that didn't seem fully like a thing uh, Johnny was comfortable with, at least in this game. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he develops further and we see what he can do against stronger opposition. Uh, and then Lund was kind of the same, that he mostly was that stay-at-home boring fullback, as you called it. He has a few runs, all of which felt to me sort of like, like the Ricky Bobby, I'm flying through the air right now. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I don't know why I'm dribbling. Like, wh- like twice he looks to pass wide, um, both times to Pulisic, and the pass is taken away. And so there's this big gap through the middle for him to dribble into, which he does. But the whole time, it just feels like he is not a player who is used to making slaloming, attacking runs. Uh, And I think he ends up with kind of little passes and then immediately retreats back. And I thought it was a fine performance from him. But I think one that it would be really easy to add too much weight to and think like, oh, we've we've got a contender here for Jedi. When in reality, I do think it's still a pretty sizable gap between uh, Anthony Robinson and the next left back, whomever it may be. I would agree. Uh, I I thought Lund was fine. He had some good moments. He had some mediocre moments. Uh, is kind of spotty in his 1v1 attacking moments, is is decent, but I think still has work to do defensively as well. He did a good job against Kurush in the 32nd minute mm-hmm. in a 1v1. Yeah, he did. So, like, there, there's some good moments here. Draws a foul just a minute later, driving at, at Ghana's right back. So, 
some positive sequences, but that, that was I don't, the moment. Yeah, thirty third when he he wins the ball of Kudish, and then thirty third minute he draws that foul, and that was the one where it's like he's just sort of dribbling, like I don't know yeah. where I'm going, and yeah. then somebody fouls him, and he's bailed a little bit. It, yeah, he doesn't look fully comfortable out there just yet, and so. I think he can be somebody to watch if he's in camp. I don't really have a problem with it. If he's not, I also don't have a problem with that either. I would still, I'm a bit bummed that we have just not seen much of Kevin Paredes at fullback for the U.S. ever. Uh, and, and he's still young, and, and I, I don't know that he's going to be the answer either. But I don't know. I, I don't I don't feel passionately about that whole discussion. And then Cardoso in midfield, I because my expectations for him were very low coming into this camp, I've never been impressed by Johnny Cardoso Pretty much any time I've watched him, he's always looked a bit off the pace, a little frail in midfield and and not really up to the task defensively. I came away impressed by what he brought to the table. Not to say that I think he should jump into the 11 on a regular basis. I don't think that. I'm not even sure that he should be getting a ton of minutes off the bench, but he exceeded my expectations, which to be clear, again, they were low. Really sort of nice texture on a lot of his passes. The way that he moves the ball when he gets it off his foot fast enough, and that is an area that he needs to improve, and, and you got to some of that well, Taylor, I think. But you know, when he gets those passes off, they're they're clean, they're on the floor, they're textured well, they're arriving to the right foot. I, I thought a lot of that stuff was really nice and tidy in midfield. And against a team like Ghana, where you need those nice, tidy players to sort of combine and break through, I thought Cardoso was a part of that. He wasn't the biggest part of it, but it left me saying, okay, if we see him in another game, I'm not angry about it, and I, I probably would have been a little irritated about that before last night, and, and I thought he was decent against Germany off the bench, too. It's a little bit like uh, Keanu Reeves showing up for a bit part in, in like a Shakespeare production or a play, that like if he does a serviceable enough job, like, I like Keanu, and then I go, oh, okay, he was, he was okay, like, he knew his lines, let's see what happens next, maybe we make him Hamlet and see how badly that goes, like, I, I think I'm right there with you, if Johnny has been a player that I've wanted to to see kind of break out and have big performances and become that next level player for the U.S., I don't feel like we've seen that, and so watching him in this game, I think bringing that baggage and that understanding of him as a player into this one, even with a a better performance, there is still a a trepidation, a hesitation to fully trust Keanu Reeves to play Hamlet for Johnny to start in that midfield. But I think him as a substitute, as a deputy in certain situations, I am fine with. And I think we'll continue to see him in that role. I think we'll continue to see Lund in, in the role uh, of deputy left back, occasional starter, uh, because I think he's also kind of a glue guy, it seems to be. He seems to be a, a locker room guy. A moment that stood out to me was after uh, the Balogun goal, the one we talked about when Wea wins the ball really high up. And it is Wea individually sort of spotting, if I apply pressure, let's see what happens. Oh, it's a heavy touch, then I'm going to apply full pressure. And he wins it and then dribbles into the box, then lays it off for Balogun. Uh, Lund in the celebrations clearly sprints the length of the pitch to hug Tim Wea and, and gives him a lot of credit really clearly for winning that ball and making that play happen. So even just there, I think I, I like to pay attention to the celebrations to to see just like kind of who's celebrating with whom, how they're celebrating, who seems happiest, who seems less uh, involved or emotional. And Lund seemed to be heavily involved in every single celebration. And so I feel like he's a guy that Burhalter likes for what he brings to the locker room as well as to the pitch. So uh, good for him. Good for Johnny. What I'm hearing is Christian Roldan 2.0 is, is what I just heard from you, Taylor. Yeah, pretty much. That checks that checks out. If Lund also has a brother who plays for El Salvador, it's really going to be a, an eerie parallel, although I doubt that's, that's likely to happen. Uh, Joe... We, we find ourselves in a bit of a confusing situation. I had a few friends ask me this, and 
It's an odd one to consider, given my love of Tyler Adams. But if we have a fully fit U.S. team, everybody's eligible to play, and we're playing against a team that is maybe going to be a little bit deeper, is going to be more defensive, or it does feel like is there for the taking if the U.S. plays aggressively in their attacking style, does Tyler Adams still start in that midfield? Or is it Yunus Musa, maybe Weston McKinney, maybe Reyna? Is it Weston McKinney now? He doesn't start in this game. Could it be an Adams, Musa, Reyna midfield? Do you have any thoughts on what midfield you think is most ideal? Yeah, so I think it depends on the opponent, really, is what I'm growing more and more sure of. Thinking back to that Germany game, I bet if Greg Berthold could play it again with a full-strength squad, Tyler Adams would start over Yunus yeah. Musa, and it would Agreed. have been Adams doing some of that defensive dirty work. He takes away some of the the immense pressure for everyone else to be constantly communicating and, and running and making plays because he's going to do that stuff, right? He's the captain of this team when he's in the lineup at this point. So I think against a, a high-octane team, Tyler Adams is going to be the default option there. And, and I would go with Adams, McKenney, and Reyna in that midfield against sort of the best teams because... The, the one thing that I, I feel, or one of the things that I feel more strongly about coming out of this window than I did coming into it, is that Tim Weah, Christian Pulisic, and Florian Balogun should start in the front line, and Gio Reyna should start in midfield. I, I know that was, you know, a way that a lot of folks were leaning before, but Gio Reyna's ability to impact the game in central spaces, it's not that different, to be honest, than if he's playing on the right wing, and he can tuck inside and drop in, and we know he would do those things. Positionally, it's not a huge change, at least in possession, but it means you don't have to take Tim Weah off the field. And I think that is huge because Weah, in my opinion, has been very, very good by and large recently. So I would leave Reyna in midfield basically in any game, barring some obvious reason, fitness or, or tactical or otherwise. But I don't really think those exist right now. And then you're choosing between two of Musa McKenney and Adams. And I think that's not a bad place to be. I, the other thing that I feel like, and I, I feel like I've been talking for a while, but another takeaway from this window is... I think Yunus Musa still has a long way to go. And I, I think we all kind of knew that before, but he struggled at the six. We talked about that after the Germany game. It was not an easy role for him, and I, I don't think that means he's condemned now in that position. But even I think about his passing, again, it was rough against Germany. The same was true, I thought, against Ghana. I have 50th minute, can't release Destin behind. 53rd minute, poor pass in his own half, turnover. Like, there's a few of those moments where you feel like you're just losing out on a little bit of juice. So I'm not I'm not saying Musa should never start. I'm not saying you should never play. But I think against most teams, I would go Musa on the bench with Adams, McKenney, and Reyna. And maybe the occasional super low block, bunkered, we need just one more guy that's going to push ahead. And Musa's that guy over Tyler Adams. Yeah, I think maybe you put him in the 11. But that's I, I'm not like fully committing. I'm not saying I do to that take just yet. But I, that's sort of where I feel myself moving in my own head. Interesting. I was curious if you were going to continue to list uh, misplaced passes from Musa there, because uh, to the FOT mob count, he was 24 of 26, 92% uh, pass completion. So, so only had one more two. to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, Jerry, oh, yeah, I don't know, it. man. Yeah, I can I don't do know. Just, just, just those two. It, it's interesting, because I think I go the other way, uh, to be honest. I felt like I saw a lot of things from Yunus Musa on the ball, off the ball, defensively, good positioning, good movement, really good tracking. It felt like he knew when he was supposed to step with a midfielder if they dropped in or a forward if they dropped in, but then also when to release them and go back. I think maybe if he's not there yet, I think if he continues to get minutes and develop uh, at Milan, there seems to be more like veteran knowledge that he is adding to his game. And I do think Milan is a big part of that. I think he's getting better instruction. I think he's around a better more consistent 
class of player than he was when it was just kind of a constant state of flux at Valencia. And I feel like that stability, not that Milan are the most stable of clubs always, but I think it has helped him develop and then also develop just a, a more cynical, I guess I'd, it's not quite dark arts, but a thing that I noticed, I was talking about this earlier when Ghana were being physical and kind of intent to, to really go hard into challenges. And AU had a few moments where he was kind of bodying up and shoving some people. Musa is, it's a new like elite skill he has. So let's say he tracks a midfielder uh, back. So the midfielder shows for a ball off the center back and gets it or doesn't get it. Uh, but he, like if he gets it, he lays it off back to another center back. And if he doesn't, he kind of stops that run. When Musa would track almost every single time, it just started to, I started to note it because it clearly became such a point of annoyance for Ghana. He would track that run. And when that guy would stop, Musa would then drop back into his more defensive position. When he would do so, he would always shove the player in the back. And he would use that player to stop his run and kind of push them further back and then drop back in. And two or three times in the final 10 minutes of the first half, I would see a Ghanaian player turn around and like look at the ref and be like, come on, man. And, and even he started to get a little bit of afters, I think, because he was riling them up. But to have a player that isn't getting called for fouls, but is bothering the opposition enough that they're starting to look to the referee and making them just come out of their game a little bit more. That was a new wrinkle for me. I, I, the amount of just like physical contact and times he was bumping Ghanaian players, touching them, shoving them, grabbing a jersey. Uh, it, it just, there was a a more cynical, more veteran sort of uh, nous to that defensive display that I liked from Yunus Musa. So I still... I'm uncertain because I think you're right that Reyna offers so much to that midfield in his overall quality, in his vision, and in in his demanding nature. Like, I, I think at times it rubs me the wrong way how he can look really frustrated, how he can look sort of almost disgusted if a, a pass doesn't come off the way he thinks it should. At the same time, there's a, there's a standard there. There's a level there that he aspires to and expects his teammates to play to. I think that can be a problem, as we've seen. But when everything's clicking and everybody seems bought in, I think it's it's a good sort of pedigree to have. I think Adams, when we see him, is still a player that I trust to be the kind of rock on the defensive side. I will add... Kyle Martino in in his coverage, who I thought was really good. I really enjoy Kyle Martino. I feel like he adds enough levity. He's a little bit of a name dropper, but, you know, that's fine. Uh, But I think he adds some levity, but I think he also adds good analysis. But he at one point, um, I'm trying to, oh, here it was. He sort of made it sound like we might be getting bad news about Tyler Adams. And then he immediately moved away from it. And I couldn't tell if that was about the reporting of his existing injury or if we were about to get more news about how severe this injury is and how long his recovery is going to be. So that was an interesting moment for me, one to keep an eye on when it comes to Adams. But I think having options is not the worst thing. And and I think it is a thing you and I have talked about this previously, that as the U.S. continues to develop as a soccer nation and as this team continues to develop and continues to attract new players, there's just going to be more talent and there are going to be difficult conversations to be had. We've talked a little bit, at least, about Luca Coliosho, who I believe at time of, of recording is still eligible. His logical position would be striker or left wing. That wing, puts yeah. him in immediate competition with Christian Pulisic. And, and there will be times when players that have been critical to this U.S. program and the successes of this team are going to be in position battles. And that is odd that we might one day see Christian Pulisic on the bench. At the same time, Uh, To go back to the Balogun conversation, it is not the worst thing to have 
new, very talented players come in or raise their game and require another player to do the same or risk losing their spot. So it's a strange position to have four very, very good central midfielders for three spots, but it is not the worst type of problem to have. I would rather have four and need three than need three and have one or two. Yep. Retweet all of that. The other thing I'll add is, you mentioned Tyler Adams' fitness and maybe some speculation from Kyle Martino. I don't know. I was watching in Spanish yet again. But, like, I I honestly wonder how often this is even going to be a problem because these guys are just never fit. They're, they're never fit together. The World Cup was, like, the one time <laughs> yeah. where they were. And it then Giorena still sort of wasn't, but was, and yeah. that's a whole mess, right? Like, it just does not happen. Didn't happen in Nations League. Didn't happen in September. Didn't happen in this window. Not going to happen next month because Tyler Adams is almost certainly not going to be back for that. So really the question is, well, do we see more of Johnny Cardoso or not? And against a team, if it is Trinidad and Tobago, I don't really care a whole lot is, is kind of my answer to that question. I would default to Musa McKenney and Reyna against a lower quality team like that. But you know what? There's enough talent in this team that I think you can throw a lot of stuff at the wall and have a lot of success. But it is ultimately, as you closed out there, Taylor, it is a good thing for the U.S. to have this problem in the first place. I have have another strange question for you, Joe. We're obviously going a little bit long. We'll try to wrap this one up shortly. But uh, Christian Pulisic, we mentioned him. He has that moment where he doesn't pass to Balogun for whatever reason in the second minute. Um, I'm not going to fully knock him on that one because he has a penalty that has a little bit of disguise to it. I liked the finish there. Even He puts it kind of central for people who didn't see, but definitely seems like he's going to put it to the keeper's left and then puts it central but to the right. Uh, He has the nice little involvement in the indirect free kick where I think it's Balogun to Pulisic. Pulisic rolls it back to Reyna who then hits it. Uh, Martino in the commentary was pointing out that the rollback from Pulisic in in a lot of situations, it would be because it's indirect. It would be Balogun playing to Pulisic. Pulisic puts his foot on top of the ball and stops it. And then Reyna runs through and hits it. Martino pointing out that with the Pulisic roll back towards Reyna, it means that he can, basically focus more on the shot because he doesn't have as much ground to cover. Even if it's only a step, it is still a step he doesn't have to take. It's an adjustment to his stride he doesn't have to make. And it's just a nice little moment where he's then able to instep it with power pretty much the exact way he wanted to in the exact spot he wanted to go. It takes a little deflection along the way, but that was a nice little moment of awareness. I have very few other notes for Christian Pulisic, and and I'm holding my, my notes up to the camera for Joe. This is probably the most notes I've taken for the U.S. in as long as I can remember. Joe, why don't I have more notes on Pulisic? Like, we occasionally get criticized for a perceived bias that we don't think Pulisic is very good, or in the past we've been overly frustrated with him. And I don't think it's that case here. I can't tell if it's just that he's doing a lot of simple things, and so I don't notice him as much. He has some runs against Germany. He has some really good moments. He has some good moments here, but... I don't really know why I don't have more to say about Pulisic or why he doesn't always lead our coverage. I think in this game, at least, a lot of the the best attacking moments for the U.S. are coming down the opposite side. Yeah. Right? They were coming through Serginho Dest, who was awesome. Tim Weah, who I thought was really, really good and sharp again in this game. Sorry, there's a Tim Weah moment, briefly, that we have to discuss. Second half, the ball comes into him. He Mm -hmm. flicks the Mm -hmm. ball over Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Ghanaian fullback's head, and the Ghanaian Mm -hmm. fullback just kind of throws up his hand and stands there. Did you see everybody? Everybody stopped. Everybody's like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) Unbelievable. That is one of my favorite moments we've seen from from any U.S. player in a long time. That is so, so, so good. But Weah was was sharp in this game. Balogun, I thought, tended to drift over to that side as well because that's where the action was. And one other reason why the action was on the right and not Christian Pulisic's left 
is because where was Giorena? Giorena was shifting towards the right side as that number 10 much more in my mind than he was shifting over to that left side in the first half. And so Pulisic then was just not as involved in the game. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. One thing that Pulisic does really well is crash from the weak side. He crashes the box as that accent runner, sort of the second or even the third runner in the box after the number nine and maybe after a, a, an arriving central midfielder. And he crashes pretty well in this game, right? Balogun is aiming for him on that Giorena goal in the 10th minute. It doesn't come off, but he's in the right spot, Pulisic, I think, in that moment. So I don't think he was as involved because the play was not really funneled through him. And I don't know that's I don't know that that's a bad thing necessarily either. I do have some negative notes on Pulisic. I have some positive ones too. Bad cross in the 14th minute. Uh, poor ball to Balogun in the 37th minute. Can't thread way behind in the 44th minute. Uh, second minute we've already talked about. Like there were down moments, but there were also really good moments as well. And you mentioned those. And that's kind of the Christian Pulisic experience. It's just nice that at this point in their evolution, the U.S. does not have to rely on Christian mm -hmm. Pulisic carrying True. them to victory. But I, I do love that he continues his good run of form, his good start to the season, and, and is involved in the goals in this one. Uh, final thing, we haven't much talked about the defense. Um, and it felt like for them and for Matt Turner, it was just a game of do your job and that they did uh matt turner i love that save you talked about it earlier joe 41st minute um it really is the only really threatening chance i can remember from ghana and that it is such a difficult save through traffic it's bending it might even take a slight deflection but he still gets a hand to it and it's and it's just an important moment because for goalkeepers so often it is, I forget what the phrasing is, but it's basically like extreme boredom punctuated by moments of terror. And that was a, like out of nowhere, here's a shot flying at you. And that's why we love Matt Turner is because he's reliable uh, and ever present. He has another one where he gets a ball driven back to him, I think by Dest maybe. I can't remember. It's a bouncing ball and he has to like adjust to it and almost looks like he hurts himself. So maybe let's not ask Matt Turner to do too much on the ball, but I thought he had... Just a reliable, consistent game. And the same goes for uh, Miles Robinson and Chris Richards, who who started this one. CCV comes in later on in the second half. But the two of them, I thought, uh, did did well. Uh, headed clear, defended set pieces pretty well, tracked runs. Richards seemed to be the one who had more freedom to track runs deeper. There were times when I would see him ahead of the midfield three, depending on where his, his runner was, and then he would move further back. But I thought... They had seemed to have a good relationship, good chemistry, and and locked it down pretty consistently. Yep. I don't have many notes on Richards and Robinson, to be honest, because they weren't tested much in this game. Yep. thought they were mostly fine on the ball. A couple of moments that maybe they'd want back. And I'd echo your Matt Turner thoughts. He's awesome. He's good for a, a oh, you like game changing to save know. a game. Yeah, I don't know if you I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I'm a pretty Pretty big fan of what Matt Turner brings to the table. I, I, guess were, I, I should have mentioned a that. guy. No. Oh, well, I've always been. I just now changed it. Sorry, I should okay. let you know. Um, but yeah, I, I would echo your thoughts on those guys. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the U.S.'s four to four to nothing win over Ghana. It still doesn't feel fully real to me. I keep having to check and make sure that that was in <laughs> fact the actual score. Uh, but Joe, way to cover two games last night. I'm guessing you didn't get a ton of sleep and your adrenaline was. Running high and then running low is the rest of your day basically uh, uh, crashing and relaxing? Watching uh, some Deep Space Nine? If it, I mean, that sounds pretty great. If by crashing and relaxing you mean prepping for two podcasts tomorrow and writing articles, yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, right. I would say ultimately we're on the same page. Right, 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 right. Forgot about that. That's always the fun part of finishing recording when it's like, ah, okay, we, like, we got our two, three, four shows sometimes done. 
And now I've got two or three more shows to prepare for for tomorrow. It doesn't stop. Soccer never sleeps. Uh, neither do we. So, Joe Lowry, let's take a break where we can. Thank you very much for uh, sitting down and talking about this game for over an hour with me. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this game. Winning is fun. Let's do more of that. Yep. I'd echo all that once again to, to really <laughs> drive my use of echo into the ground on this episode. Taylor, this was fun. Thank you. Well, you can't say retweet anymore because that's nope. not allowed. I'm still saying retweet. Listeners, thanks so much for sticking with us. We'll talk to you again multiple more times this week. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.